chapter 5. This morning, Acts chapter 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank You and bless You for the opportunity, the privilege of being able to read and open and to study Your Word this morning. As always, Lord, we pray that You would anoint us and bless us with Your Spirit. Grant us, Lord, understanding and wisdom as your instruction goes forth. May we rightly, Lord, rightly divide your word. That we might show ourselves approved unto you as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. We ask, Father, lead us, guide us through your word now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. What would be the first question that you would ask 12 men who, hours earlier, had been arrested and put into a prison, but miraculously ended up in the midst of a crowd in the temple the next morning, thanks to the help of an angel who happened to let them out of said prison? What would you ask them? What would be the first thing you would want to ask them? I don't know about you, but I think that, uh, you know, having uh, been around a lot of law enforcement people and people that have to interrogate other people about one kind of incident or another, it oftentimes seems that we would naturally ask the question, so how'd you get out of prison? How'd you do it? Who was it that, uh, that, that let you out? Who was the traitor who let you out? Who was the one? I mean, that, that's, that would be my questions, I, you know. How'd you get out of that prison cell when, when it was guarded so well and, and the, prisoner, uh, the prison guards themselves were wide awake and, and they never heard you come out? How did you do it? Who did it? You know, it's interesting. When you read this passage of Scripture here in Acts chapter 5 that, that those questions never came up. As the high priest who represented the council began to interrogate the apostles. He didn't ever ask. He he didn't even seem to care about how they came out. What a revealing though. It is a revealing thing that he didn't ask those questions. A revealing of their hearts. The hearts of the high priest. The hearts of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. The council. Toward Jesus Christ. And his representatives. 
You see, it was obvious that something supernatural had taken place. But the high priest purposely avoided asking the, the apostles since the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural anyway. Besides, I'm sure he didn't want to hear about angels that he didn't believe in. So why even ask the question? What did they want to hear? That's also revealing of their hearts. What was it that they wanted to hear from them? What had so infuriated them about Jesus Christ and those that followed him? When you look at the text here in verse 27, it says when they brought them, they had brought them. And of course, just to bring up to, up to, up to the time that uh, we, we find ourselves here in, the apostles themselves had, had been threatened and told not to preach the gospel of Jesus any longer, not to preach or to teach in his name. And yet they went back out to the temple and they began to uh, not only preach the gospel, not only teach about Jesus Christ, not only teach about the resurrection of Jesus, but they began to touch people's lives and they began to touch bodies and people were being healed. Of course, the greatest, uh, uh, the greatest focal point of that was that lame man that was healed, that, that we spent so much time in uh, observing what was taking place because of, of his touch. But then so many other people were coming to Jesus. So many others were, were bringing their family members and, and bringing them to the, uh, I should say, to the apostles and, and they were touching them and healing them. And really it was the Lord healing them through his apostles. But it was really stirring up the people to come and, 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 and they, they, saw, they, they gave favor toward these apostles. But the temple guard, the temple officials, the high priests, the Sadducees, all the political uh, big wigs in the, in the Sanhedrin, the very council itself, took them and arrested them, but didn't do anything to them because they feared the people. And once again, after this, this, all this healing was taking place and all these miracles were taking place, they arrested them again. And they brought them and set them before the council, as we see here in verse 27. And the high priest asked them, and notice what he first asks them. He says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. How interesting that they never speak the name of Jesus. This man. This man's blood. The important question that is asked, though, is the question, with commanding, did we not command you? That is exactly what they asked the apostles. With commanding, did we not command you? This is literally what Luke recorded. He recorded a Hebraism, a Hebrew idiom, Something that was familiar to the ears of all those present at that time. And would be familiar to those that Luke was writing to. A Hebrew idiom proving the accuracy and the faithfulness of Luke's factual reporting. Along with the derogatory references to the name of Jesus by not using his name. They would not use his name. They just said this name, this man's blood. But it reveals something else about these people. And it reveals something else about the high priest and and all of his cronies. There was certainly a guilty conscience that was speaking. There was a guilty conscience speaking since they already had brought that blood upon themselves 
when they had incited the mob at Jesus' trial before Jesus goes to the cross. You remember this, Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a, a tumult was rising. He took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You know, isn't it just interesting how many people just don't want to say the name of Jesus anymore? <laughs> it goes all the way back to Pilate and it goes back to the high priest and all those who didn't love Jesus. He said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, and here's what's significant. They said, His blood be on us and on our children. They had put it upon themselves. But now the high priest is saying, you, you apostles, you followers of, of this man, you're trying to put that blood on us. That was false. That was a lie, you see. It needs to be said that the apostles had no desire to bring the blood of Jesus Christ upon these men, to bring vengeance on them, to make them answerable for Jesus' death. That is not what they intended. Their desire was to bring the blood of Jesus Christ to their enemies' hearts so that they might be saved from their sins. That's what the, was the desire of these apostles. That's what the, was the desire of their hearts. And still the high priest pressed them concerning the command not to teach in Jesus' name. Go back to chapter 4 for just a moment, one page back. In Acts chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And here in, in their little conference time, they say amongst themselves, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we can't deny it. They don't want to believe it, but they can't deny it. They don't want to say that it's happened because it says all the others in Jerusalem have seen it, but we, you know, we can't deny it, but we don't want to believe it. But notice in verse 17 what they say, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And Luke continues in his commentary in verse 18, and he says, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, or, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So you see, that's not them saying the name of Jesus, that's Luke saying the name of Jesus. And so the high priest is, continues to press them concerning that command not to teach. Not even concerned about how they escaped from prison. Not even concerned about, uh, you know, those, those issues that took place the day before, or the night before. Their minds, their eyes, everything, they're, they're just completely blinded, you see. They don't want to believe in this Jesus who has come and upset their status quo, especially among the people. And so when the high priest made that, or the statement that the apostles had filled Jerusalem, do you see that there? Verse 28 of our text. Did we not strictly, uh, chapter 5, did we not strictly command you not to teach in His name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with, with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You have filled Jerusalem with His doctrine. You know what my response would have been? Thank you. You have filled Jerusalem with His doctrine. Oh, thanks, but it's, you know, give all glory to the Lord Jesus. He wasn't saying it to give them a compliment. But nonetheless, 
what we see here is a great admission. It is a great admission and a wonderful testimony that they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine about Jesus Christ. It was a great admission, a great wonderful testimony, not to mention an amazing indictment of the effectiveness of the apostles' witness and message preached by them. They filled Jerusalem with their doctrine of Jesus Christ. They filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They filled Jerusalem with the, with, with the doctrine of the power of Jesus Christ to continue to heal, even though He had ascended into heaven, even though He sat at the right hand and sits at the right hand of the Father. They had filled Jerusalem. Consider that the Sanhedrin was, was no longer up against unlearned and ignorant Galilean fishermen as they had thought uh, uh, them to be. Ignorant, unlearned fishermen. No, the Sanhedrin wasn't up against them. It was up against the, the Holy Spirit who empowered them. You see, that's a tremendous thing. The world could be either against us in, in our flesh, which is not much, or it could be up against the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be the preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which would you rather have it? Is there anything in you that is of, of greater value than the Holy Spirit? Is there anything in you that is of greater power than the power of the Holy Spirit? No. So whenever the enemy is up against us, there, it's a, he's not up against us, he's up against the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Isn't that a better thing? If he's only up against us, we lose. The Sanhedrin were up against, uh, they, they, they were on a collision course with the wrath of God. Listen carefully. They were on a collision course with the wrath of God and they couldn't be any further. They could not be any further from having repentant hearts. They couldn't be any further from being converted toward Jesus than they were then, at that very present time. That's how far they were from repentant hearts. Some of us may know that. Some of us may know that experience of being so far from, from the Lord, and yet how the Lord pursued us to that point where we did repent of our sins, where we did turn away from them and turn to the living Christ. Yet at this point, we don't see this in the enemies of Jesus and the apostles. But consider, if you will, what goes on to be said by Peter in, in, in response to all of this. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. If there is a phrase that we're going to need to keep in our minds and hearts this morning, it is that phrase, We ought to obey God rather than men. Peter goes on to say in verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. You see, the, the, the Sanhedrin and, the, and the, 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 the Sadducees, the high priests, all together, we'll just call them the Sanhedrin, they came and they gave a charge against the apostles. Peter, as the spokesman of the apostles, now gives a counter-challenge 
to this charge. And he says we ought to obey God rather than men. Please understand that there was certainly a higher court in Israel that day than the Sanhedrin themselves. There was a higher court. It was the supreme and the sovereign court of heaven. The Almighty and one true God had sent His only Son into the world. He had sent His Spirit into the world. And now He was sending His servants into the world. The high priests, the Sadducees, and the whole council of the Sanhedrin had no authority whatsoever to forbid the apostles to preach in the name of Jesus. They had no authority to forbid them to preach in the name of Jesus. They knew it and the apostles knew it. And so where did their loyalties lie? See, that's a question to ask concerning both groups, concerning the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and concerning the apostles. Where did their loyalties lie? It's a good question to ask us ourselves today. Where does my loyalty lie? That one great statement that, that Peter makes as the spokesman for the apostles, he makes this counter-challenge to the council that should have silenced them all. For there is no more to be said after saying this, we ought to obey God rather than men. What else is there to say? We ought to obey God. He's not speaking to, uh, from the standpoint of saying just we apostles ought to obey. He says we, all of us in this room, we, the apostles and Sanhedrin and Sadducees and high priests, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see the scope of that statement? They should have understood that. They should have, that, they, they should have been silenced by that. What a tremendous testimony of, of uncompromised boldness by Peter. You remember Peter before Jesus died on the cross? You know... Peter who, you know, Simon Peter who used to stick his foot in his mouth all the time. Who, when confronted, you know, with, with his supposed bravery at the point of, of Jesus being taken uh, and arrested, that he fled and, and he denied Jesus three times. This same Peter, now after being filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and preaching as he has, now he stands up in the face, in the face of his accusers, in the face of his opposition, in the face of his enemies. And he says, we ought to obey God rather than men. What a contrast to the Sanhedrin who cared more about man's opinion than God's truth. And there's a lot of that going around today. And I'm sorry to say even in the church. There are people that are more concerned and, more, and that care more about man's opinion than they do about God's truth. It's important to note that the apostles did not change their convictions. It saddens me today when I hear of some people that, that were so committed and they have been so committed to Jesus Christ to one day just turn around and say, you know, I don't believe that anymore. It's, it's hard for me to believe that. And their convictions can be so easily changed and you wonder, where did that happen? And why does that happen? But these apostles, in the face of death, as we'll see next time, but these apostles did not change their convictions whatsoever. And we would not have either if we had known and been with Jesus like they had been accused of being. These men have been with Jesus. Well, that's where we, are to, that's where we ought to stay. That's where we always ought to be, to be with Jesus. 
Consider the response to the council's command in chapter 4. Go back again to chapter 4 just a moment. There in verses 19 and 20, following what we just read previously. But John and, uh, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In essence, they strengthen that statement by saying we ought to obey God rather than men. And here is a very significant principle being presented here to us today. We are to obey God and trust Him to take care of the consequences. And folks, when you stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you stand for the person and work of Jesus Christ in this day and age, in this time and in this society and in this culture in which we live, when we stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are going to face any number of consequences. Just because we stand for the truth. Just because we stand for the right just because we stand for the Scriptures. Because we stand for what the Scriptures say. We are to obey God and trust Him to take care of the consequences. That is what Peter and the apostles are doing. They don't know what the consequences are going to be as we swing around into the next part of the, of the chapter next week and, and you see what, the, what the intention of these Sanhedrin were or would be. We are to obey God and trust Him to take care of the consequences, especially when we have to disobey authorities when they as rulers contradict God. And that's the whole thought here. (laughs) We are to obey God and trust Him to take care of the consequences, especially when we have to disobey authorities when they as rulers contradict God. There have been times in history, and we know this, there have been times in history when Christians were forced to make that choice of whether to obey the government or whether to obey God. That choice is being made every day today in, in various parts of the world. But take, for example, during World War II, take, for example, that there were Christians in Europe who disobeyed the Nazi government and they helped to hide Jews. One in particular, and many of you are familiar with this person, named Corrie Ten Boom. Maybe you've seen the, the movie that was done of her life, The Hiding Place. She and her family hid, Christi- hid Jews during uh, the, the time of uh, the Nazis going forth and, and gathering Jews to take them to concentration camps. And Corrie Ten Boom's uh, sister and, and actually members of her family were all taken to a prison camp a Nazi prison camp. It could be very easy for some people to have their convictions changed through the sufferings that they would suffer. But here are some of, uh, of, of, of little bits of wisdom that, that she learned in that prison camp from her writings. Maybe you've read some of these things before. Listen to these words as she writes, If God sends us on stony paths, He provides strong shoes. If God sends us on stony paths, He provides strong shoes. I think of, a, of an even greater statement that she writes when she says, When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. 
When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. We are called to be good citizens of the countries in which we live. The laws that are made within most countries, and especially ours here in particular, are made for the good of all people so that none are taken advantage of and so that everybody's safety is is secured. We have all kinds of laws today that we are to follow. And for the most part, they're, they're good laws. Let's take, for example, traffic laws. No, please, not traffic laws. Don't mention those. Oh, yeah. We see 35, but somehow our mind computes to 45. We see 55, and somehow it just computes to 65. Get on the open road where it has 75, and who knows where that's going to end up. That's just an example. Paul writes in in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. A very simple understanding here of how we are to obey the laws as they apply to each and every one of us, and how we are to take care of one another within our society and cultures. And this remains true unless the government, unless, unless, unless the government directs us to obey or to disobey the laws of God. Once the government begins to direct us to disobey the laws of God, we are no longer to follow those dictates of the government. And think about it, where we are today. If any governmental directive calls us to disobey the laws of God, which I would say we need to keep a close watch on our own government in the way that it is targeting the church, in the way that it is targeting the Scriptures, the Bible, the Ten Commandments, the way it has targeted already prayer in public places and symbols out in the public place. Now, we don't have to succumb to pressure, peer or otherwise. We don't have to succumb to change our convictions. Daniel was a good example of that. Daniel, who was taken uh, as, as, as a slave with the children of Israel. Children of Judah. As young as he was with his Hebrew friends, the government they were now under was going to change their way of doing things, change their diets, change their education change their ways of living, change their ways of doing. But in Daniel 1, verse 8, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. See, that nation was saying to Daniel, we're going to change the way you do things so that you will now go along and follow along in our ways. Daniel said he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He would not change his convictions. 
And when offering a test, and his Hebrew brethren along with him, of not taking these delicacies, but only eating certain things. The end result in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 1 says, In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. It's an interesting thought. Just, I just got to throw this in here for, you know, for what it's worth. But uh, I was reading or hearing actually a, a report that they were doing on, on TV not too long ago about, about homeschooling and, and uh, and not to say that homeschooling is better you know, than, than certain other types of education or whatever, but just the very fact <clears throat> that in the, in, in the studies that they've done, homeschoolers are far advanced in their education than many in public schools today, and even in some Christian or private uh, schools. Just a thought. To be found so much better than the way the world does things. The way God's people should do things should always be better than the way the world would want to do them. And there's good reason. Because it's, great, it's, it's certainly a great benefit to be pleasing to God and not to men. Simple as that. It's a great benefit to be pleasing to God and not to men. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, he says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. It is God who's going to test our hearts. God is going to test his bottom line. I don't stand up here to try to please you. I stand up here to preach God's word, to teach you God's word. That, that, is, that is a commitment I have made unto the Lord to, to, to do that. And I, and I do everything I can to do this right. To rightly divide the word that you and me, that we together might show ourselves approved unto God. But not to please you, but to please God. And today we find too many people trying to please men in churches. Please you with all kinds of ways and all kinds of things and all kinds of entertainments of one sort or another. Uh, we won't do that. It's not why we're here. We're here to worship God. We're here to know the God who created all things. To know Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. To know Him through His Word. And then to go forth and to be witnesses for Christ. But our convictions cannot change. No matter what the temperature of the world is. And as the convictions of the apostles in, in this uh, chapter of Acts 5, as their convictions did not change, neither did their core message. Neither did the core message of the apostles. Go back to verse 30 in your text in Acts chapter 5. It says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And you might think that the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the high priests are just saying, man, he just, there he goes again. Sticking it to us. We hung him. We murdered him. We hung him on a tree. It's an important thought. So hold on to that. 
Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God, has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Why? Because we ought to obey God rather than man. And by the way, and I didn't mention this earlier, but the word ought there, the word ought is not really some kind of a, of a, of a compromising type way or just, you know, say, you know, well, we ought to do this, but if we don't, it's all right. That, you know, because sometimes we might think the word ought doesn't have any real strength to it, but literally in the, in the Greek, that word ought literally means must. We must obey God rather than men. That's the true thrust of that word. That's the true power of that word, is that he says we must obey God rather than that. So Peter now counter-indicts the religious and the civil leaders for the death of Jesus, and with confidence he affirms once again that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. Remember that this has been the message all along in the temple. This Jesus, whom you killed, has been raised from the dead. And the reason why you see what you're seeing here today on the day of Pentecost, the reason why you hear all of these tongues in, in, in your languages, because Jesus is alive. The reason why this lame man is standing here before you is because Jesus healed him. What did Peter say when he, when he raised that man up? He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Because it is a risen Christ that Peter was preaching. And so this did not make them insurrectionists, it made them resurrectionists. You see? The council kept thinking they were insurrectionists. But they were really just only resurrectionists, because that's what their message was. And not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but was also exalted by God to heaven. The work being accomplished by the Holy Spirit in recent days was evidence that Jesus had returned to heaven and sent His Spirit as He had promised. And you remember that Jesus had told His disciples, you know, you, you want to keep me here, but I, I've got to go. Because if I don't go, I, I, don't, I don't send the Holy Spirit to you. So I, I've, I've, got to be, I've got to be ascended now. I've got to go back to heaven. Because then I can send you the Holy Spirit. And that was a promise, and it came. It came on the day of Pentecost. But then he says this, he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. There could be no greater crime. Think, think, for, think about this for just a moment. There could be no greater crime than that committed by the Sanhedrin in that they had sinned against the God of our fathers. They had sinned against the God of their fathers. They had sinned against the God of our fathers, as Peter put it, the true and the living God of Israel, who had revealed Himself and His purposes in so many ways to the fathers of the nation. No greater sin than murdering Jesus and hanging Him on a tree. They probably had taken this sarcastic and mocking satisfaction in that mode of death, well, the Romans, you know, they do that. They hang people on, 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 on sticks, on, you know. And that, that, that can equate, you see, to, to what it tells us in, in the book of Deuteronomy, as we'll see in just a moment. 
Oh, but what satisfaction it would be to put that Jesus on that tree. Taking the advantage, to their advantage, the words of the law in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. They took that to their advantage. <clears throat> and they said, if we can get Jesus on that tree, and if it's a Roman tree, it doesn't matter. If it's a Roman cross, it doesn't matter. We can get him up there. We will let the people see then that he is accursed of God. And this Jesus stuff will be over. What they were ignorant of was that Christ Jesus was deliberately bearing in His body the curse so that blessings might flow to those who believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who was given so that they should not perish but have everlasting life. They were ignorant of that. They were ignorant of the very fact that Jesus deliberately bore on His body the curse. He bore on His body the sins of the world. He did it on purpose. They were ignorant of that. Galatians chapter 3, Paul in verse 10 and following says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And of course, obedience was important in the time of the law and of the commandments. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith, which is also Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. And yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So it's not just that which is outward, but that which is inward. You live by them. Christ has redeemed us, it says, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Paul the great theologian, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews, who considered his whole life and everything that he had done up to that point in time when he came to know Christ, beyond, before all of that, he just said, that's just nothing to me. It's dung in comparison to the knowledge of Christ. Now he gives us this great theological statement. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And he's encouraging those Gentiles in the Galatian churches that Jesus died for them as well. Why did Peter use the word tree instead of the word cross? <clears throat> well, what Peter did was, was draw an association from the, De from the Deuteronomy passage and bring attention to the magnitude of their rejection of Jesus, making it clear that they murdered Him in the, most, in the worst possible way, I should say. Whether it be from the Roman perspective, which is the cross, or the Jewish perspective, which is the tree, the Sanhedrin's logic was so twisted 
that they saw the death of Jesus by hanging as evidence that he was accursed. And so they, they had a mocking satisfaction that Jesus had hung on that tree and everybody who would see him would say he's accursed. There's something that we need to learn about that time and that culture. And we had this at one time as a whole in our society and culture as well. They believed in, in they had a culture of shame and honor. There were things that would shame you and your family and your family's name. And there were things done that would honor you and your name and your family's name. And anything that was done to shame would shame would truly bring shame to, to people's hearts. Jesus hanging on this tree was to be a shame. How shameful? Those that would hang on crosses, those that would hang on these in these displays were completely naked, which was a sign of shame in those days. You see where we're going in our, in our generation and in our time, in our society and culture today? Where is the shame any longer? Have we lost shame in this country? Have we lost shame in our society? Honor doesn't mean much anymore with, uh, with people as well. There is still honor, thankfully. Because there are still people who believe in the foundation of truth. But when, I, when, but when I see young people today on TV who have been arrested for heinous crimes, and you see no remorse on their faces, that what they do, they do for themselves, and there's no shame in it whatsoever, isn't that a sign of, of, of the times in which we live today? That Paul said that we're living in dangerous and perilous times. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, evildoers, haughty, arrogant. And, and don't think that, that, that it's just little sub-topics sub here when, when you think of the corruption in, in major sports uh, things like the NBA, the things that are happening today. It all ties together. No shame. Yet Jesus hung on a cross bearing sin, bearing our sin, our shame before the whole world. The honor was in obedience. And so you can look at Jesus on the cross and you realize that there was beauty for ashes. There was the shame taken. But in reality, that was the honor. Why? Because Jesus was obedient to the point of death. The death on the cross. 
shame and honor. As Christians, as we receive the, the, the blessing of, of salvation through Jesus Christ because we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that He shed His blood for our forgiveness, and He's risen from the dead for us. The, the, the blessing here is that we don't have so much that honor because of what we've done. The honor goes to Him. The honor is His. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. All honor, all glory goes to Him. Getting back here to our text, I took a little side street there, if you don't mind. But getting back to these Sanhedrin Their hatred of Christ was complete and total foolishness. Their hatred of Christ was complete and total foolishness. And I say that because the resurrection proved them wrong. The resurrection proved them wrong. Jesus was both sovereign and Savior. Peter calls them prince and savior, but that means exactly that, that he was sovereign and savior. He, has, he had risen from the dead. And, and folks, there, there, nobody came up. There was a, a, a thing called the Passover plot where they try to cover up the, you know, the, the resurrection of Jesus. But there was no proof that Jesus had died and was because really, where are the bones today? Even to this day, people are trying to say, well, you know, I think we found the box where Jesus' bones are. Right. People working so hard to try to contradict what has already been proven to be true. Jesus rose from the dead. And people saw Him, eyewitnesses. And they not only saw Him, but they touched Him. And they were with him. And all of these things were recorded. And would you record them and then record them as lies and then die for that? The apostles died for the truth. The truth was that Jesus was alive. And he had resurrected and he had risen and he had ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter said there in verse 31, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance, listen carefully, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Please consider, please consider the hearts of the apostles in this statement that I just read. There is a note of thoughtful, contemplative pleading in their reply to the Sanhedrin. There was still an opportunity for Israel to repent of their sins, but time was running out. And Peter, Peter says to them, God has exalted him to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's still the opportunity, but time is running out. Peter got in their faces with their sin. That's boldness from the Holy Spirit. He got in their faces with their sin, not that they might be condemned, but that they might be saved by turning to God in repentance. This is the message of the Gospel. Exactly what Peter was saying to these Sanhedrin. That is the word that we are to bring to all men everywhere today. 
the very same message. We look toward the throne of God and there by faith we see Him sitting on the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the man Christ Jesus who shed His precious blood for our redemption. There we see Him by faith. There we know He is because His Word tells us. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. We sang today, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. That is a tremendous statement that you have to sit for hours to contemplate. For the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Despising the shame, who for the joy set before Him. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful Savior. What a marvelous Savior we have. Paul to Timothy, his son in the faith, he writes in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-7, through Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Are we doing that today, folks? Are we, play, are we praying for our, those in, a, in our governments and in our authorities so that we might lead this life, so that we might give forth the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul speaks of the man, Christ Jesus, who came in flesh and died and rose again. In Romans 8, verse 34, Paul says, Who is he who condemns it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So He's not just sitting there twiddling His thumbs, but He's making intercession for us at this very moment, at this very hour. Jesus is interceding for us. Lastly, in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore He is able, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. How much does Jesus care for you right now that He's making intercession for you at this very moment? Because He is able to save to the uttermost. And I, and I say all of these things because that's where Jesus is in awaiting His glorious return to this earth as He's promised. And at that time, Peter warned them that they were now dealing with the Holy Spirit. And on top of it all, the message to Israel had passed into new hands as well. The Sanhedrin was no longer the custodians of the truth. The apostles were. What did Paul say? We are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. 
The Sanhedrin were no longer the custodians of the truth. The apostles were. No longer was the nation of Israel the reservoir and the store of God's message to men. The church was. But they could be blessed if they would only obey. The Sanhedrin would be blessed. The Sadducees would be blessed. The high priest would be blessed if they would only obey. You see, it's interesting that the Sanhedrin were powerless before God. They were powerful before the people. The people held them in high esteem. These were their religious leaders. These were their civil leaders. These were their political leaders. But the reality was that the Sanhedrin was powerless before God. The apostles, on the other hand, were powerful because of God. They were powerful because of God's Holy Spirit given to them. The Sanhedrin sought to please men. The apostles sought to please God by living lives of obedience. And I think of the words of Paul in Romans 6, verses 15 and 16. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? The apostle said in Peter's words, we ought to obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. I leave you with two questions this morning to think about, to contemplate, to meditate upon about your own heart and your own life. Who are you looking to please? Question number one. Who are you looking to please? The second question is this. Who do you want your praise from? Who do you want your praise from? Let me read you these words in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'll close with this. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, They did not confess him, speaking of Jesus, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Who are you looking to please? And who do you want your praise from? I know that in the ministry, oftentimes, praise may come. And we give thanks to God for it. Unfortunately, many times as well, praise may come from one side of of a person's mouth and on the other side comes other things, ugly things, but never directly to the face, always behind, always to someone else. And it's painful 
But in the ministry, we don't live for the praise of men. It may come, and sometimes it's good because we've been called to encourage each other in the Lord. And it's okay to encourage people when we do it with a sincere heart. But the point of the matter is we don't live for the praise of men. What we do, we do so that God would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. A lot of us might receive a lot of well dones, at a boys, pats on the back. That's fine. They only last for a little while. Because then tomorrow comes. And who knows what we do then. But if we stay faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we stay faithful to that statement, we ought to obey God rather than men, then I would much rather hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. And to hear any amount of praise from men. Who are you looking to please? Peter and the apostles sought only to please their God. Should we do any less? Shall we pray?